A young Christian went to his local church, usually, but one weekend attended a small town church. He came home and his wife asked him how it was. Well, said the young man, it was good. They did something different, however. They sang hymns instead of regular songs. Hymns, said his wife, what are those? Oh, uh, they're okay. They're sort of like regular songs, only different, said the young man. Well, what's the difference, asked his wife. The young man said, well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, well, that would be a regular song. If, on the other hand, I were to say to you, O Martha, dear Martha, hear thou my cry, inclinest thine ear to the words of my mouth, turn thou thy whole wondrous ear by and by to the righteous, inimitable, glorious truth. For the way of the animals who can explain, there in their heads is no shadow of sense. Hearkenest they in God's son or his reign, useless from the mild tempting corn they are fenced. Yea, those cows in glad bovine, rebellious delight, have broke free their shackles, their warm pens eschewed, then goaded by minions of darkness and night, they all by mild chilliwack wild corn have chewed. So look to that bright shining day by and by, where all foul corruptions of earth are reborn, where no vicious animal makes my soul cry, and I no longer see those foul cows in the corn. Amen. <laughs> then, if I were to do only verses 1, 2, and 4, and do a key change on the last verse, well, that would be a hymn. <laughs> I thought that was great. Now, by the way, I love hymns, so I'm not, I'm not knocking hymns. I actually prefer them. But if you were brought up in the church at all, then that's funny to you because you hear that and and it just resonates because you say, man, that is just spot on. But what it illustrates for us, that story, is it illustrates the types of changes and transitions that happen in churches or in God's kingdom or in the lives of God's people as we move from generation to generation. And as we come to Judges chapter 13 in our story, we're approaching a time of transition for the people of God. Though we've only gone through 12 whole chapters up to this point, we've covered about 350 years of history since the passing of Joshua. And what we enter tonight is the seventh and last of the sin cycles that take place with the people of God throughout the period of time that's known as uh, the Judges. And we come to Samson, who is the last of the Judges that's highlighted for us in this book. He's the most well-known by far. He gets the most press of any of the Judges. There are four chapters that are carved out for him here that tell his story and lay out for us the lessons and the truth uh, that we gain from it. Now, by this time, by the time that Samson comes onto the scene... Historically, all of the events that take place in the book of Ruth are already completed. So you'll notice that the book of Ruth comes after Judges, but the events of Ruth have already taken place probably a hundred years ago by this time. Interesting fact for those of you that are are students of the word that kind of follow the history and you know the, the line, but Rahab the harlot, the one that was saved from Jericho back in Judges, I'm sorry, Joshua chapter 6. Rahab the harlot was accepted into Israel society and she actually married a Jew whose name was Salmon. And it was Rahab and Salmon who gave birth to Boaz, who was the one who married Ruth in the book of Ruth. And so Boaz was actually the son of Rahab the harlot from from Joshua chapter 6. You know, that's kind of outstanding to kind of realize that because, you know, Boaz, his son was Obed, whose son was Jesse, whose son was David. And so here's what that means, is that by the time Samson is born, David's older brothers are probably already alive, David was the youngest. He had seven that were older than he was. But his older brothers, some of them are probably little kids by the time Samson comes on the scene. So there's a transition that's taking place because the the kingdom or the, the judgeship really is transitioning into the kingdom. God is beginning to prepare the way for what is next for his people. They're going to move from this uh, judgeship into having the king, Saul and then David and whatnot, 
Uh, and so thus the judgeship of Samson is very unique. It's different in a lot of ways from a lot of the other judges. Now, in what ways is Samson unique? And he is absolutely unique. There is no other judge in this book or really any other person in the Bible that is quite like Samson. First of all, a couple things, is that we'll notice right in verse 1 is that there was 40 years of oppression in this instance. Now we have seen that in all of the other cases there was 7 years or 8 years or 15 years. At most there was 20. But this time 40 years before God intervenes and brings his people out of the trouble that they're in. It's the longest time uh, that, that the children of Israel have gone being oppressed by their enemies. The second thing that's unique about this season is that there's no point where the children of Israel cry out to the Lord. In all of the other cycles, they would get to the bottom of the barrel and they would cry out and ask God to help them. Not so in this case. They never ask for God's help. He raises up Samson completely independent of the will uh, or, or desire or request of the people. Um, the third thing is, is that Samson is the only one of the judges who was raised up from birth and cultivated with the express purpose of becoming a deliverer or a judge for God's people. He's brought up in a godly home, the only one of the judges. He's the only one that is called to be a Nazarite, which we'll examine in a couple of minutes as we see what, what that was. He was to be separate and consecrated. Uh, he's the only one that we see the Spirit of God working in his life long before he ever does anything uh, in terms of ministry or service for the Lord. Uh, he's the only one that works alone. He has no army. There's no alliance or allegiance or tribe that goes with him. He is absolutely independent in what he does and how he does it. He is kind of the, the Jason Bourne of God's kingdom, if you would. And, and in a lot of ways, he really is. He's kind of pre-programmed to be the supernatural super saint uh, and he goes ballistic. He, it doesn't work out. He kind of goes rogue and, 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 and self-destructs, you know. But all that just to say that his ministry is extremely unique. He's not like any of the other judges. There's a lot of lessons also that we will learn from examining the life of this man. He is a lesson for every believer of God in every generation of unfulfilled potential. Of having a call, of having gifts of having promise, but yet never seeing that promise and those gifts fulfilled because of moral failure or because of rebellion or lack of patience or whatever it might be, we see that Samson is, is absolutely a lesson in unfulfilled potential. He's also a lesson in choices. And that is that God never takes away our power to make our own decisions and to, to do what it is that we want to do. We can choose to follow His ways or we can choose to go our own way and do our own thing. And Samson uh, is a lesson for us in that, uh, that, that God doesn't interfere with our choice, and he doesn't interfere with the consequences that those choices bring. Also, he's a lesson in what happens when you let the Spirit of God work through your life, but not in your life. And, and for, for any of us that have ever been used by God in any capacity, we understand what that means. Is that it's possible to have the Spirit of God use you, but on a personal level, in your own relationship with God, you can resist what He's trying to do in forming Christ in you. And Samson is absolutely a lesson in that, of having his power, but having no intimacy with his person. And that's Samson. He's, a, he's an illustration of consecration without communion, or authority, but having no accountability to God or to anyone uh, else. He's also a lesson of what happens when you live in two different worlds. When part of your life is sold out and used completely for God, but another part of your life or part of your heart is completely godless or lived completely for self. And we see that to be a reality in this man. And most important, the story of Samson is a lesson in redemption and in grace and in God's unfailing love because we'll see that God never quits on this man and God never says no I'm finished with you but he's faithful to Samson all the way to the end but overall looking at everything that the scripture tells us about this man his story is an incredible warning to us 
And that's what Samson is in the scriptures. Samson is also a type or a foreshadowing, a picture of Jesus Christ. Now, as we've seen with all of the judges so far, there is something in them that points to or reflects the great deliverer or the great judge, Jesus. And someone actually said to me a couple of weeks ago, I can't wait to hear where you see in Samson's life how he is a type of Christ. But Samson is. And here's where it is. First of all, Samson's parents are visited and informed of his birth before it happens, just as Jesus was the same way. In fact, just as Joseph, the son of Jesus, needed a special visitation, so also we'll see that Samson's father is going to need the same. Samson is consecrated from birth. He's called to be a Nazarite from the time he's in the womb. And although Jesus was not a Nazarite physically, he was a Nazarite spiritually in everything that it represented and typified. Also, Samson came to Israel in their darkest moment. It was 40 years of no spiritual activity. In in fact, there was oppression from their enemies when Samson was announced and raised up. And so also it was with Jesus. There was 400 years where there had been no prophet, no revelation, and it was the darkest time in Israel's existence when Jesus came. And so Samson and Jesus both have that in common. Also, Samson wrought salvation with his own arm. He did it by himself. There was no one that helped him. So also Jesus. He worked out our salvation, wrought it, worked it through his own strength, by his own arm. By his right hand, he had saved us. Also, Samson accomplished more through his death than he did in his life. And we see that also with Jesus. Although his earthly ministry was incredibly fruitful, it was actually in his death that he accomplished what he came to do which was to purchase our salvation. And so a type of Christ. And then finally, Samson reveals the secret of his strength to Gentiles. And so also Jesus revealed the great secret of his strength to Gentiles, to you and I. He said, all things that the Father has given to me, I have made known unto you. And so Samson, as messed up as he was as an individual... He's a great picture of Christ in those ways as a deliverer. And that was God's intent. Now, he was a type of Christ, but he was also a failable man. And in that, he also is a great picture of Israel. Samson, the individual, is a picture of Israel, the nation. How's that? Well, first of all, there was a supernatural element to his birth, just as there was also for Israel. We see that Samson was called to a life of high separation and devotion to God. So also Israel was to be separate from the other nations and devoted to God. We see that Samson had a problem with foreign women. That's a problem for him. And we see that Israel also had a problem with foreign gods. Also, uh, you know, often accused by the father of being uh, adulterous. God uses those words to describe them. We see that Samson was blinded for a season. Same thing happened to Israel. Jesus said, because you have missed the day of your visitation, these things are also hidden from your eyes. And Paul said in Romans 11.25, he said that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And just like Samson, at the end of his life, was again used and touched by God. So also Israel, in their last days, will be used and touched by God during the tribulation in an incredible way. Uh, And and just as uh, Samson was temporarily abandoned, yet sustained for future service, so the same thing is true of Israel. And so, incredible picture that this man Samson is. And we see the fingerprints of God all over his life in, in teaching, in painting pictures, and in showing us things. Now, the outline of Samson's life that covers these next four chapters of our study goes like this. Chapter 13 gives to us his preparation and his calling. How God met with his parents and how God began working in Samson's life. Then, in chapter 14, we see Samson's waywardness and his compromise. Where he falls away and and, and does not quite measure up and kind of ruins his, his, uh, his life. In in, uh, chapter 15, part 3, it's his acts of deliverance 
And really, it's more like terrorism when you read uh, what he did to the Philistines. It makes us laugh because they're God's enemies, but uh, incredible acts that Samson accomplished. And then um, finally, chapter 16, part 4, is his tragic yet redemptive ending and how he went downhill. And so that's Samson's life in a nutshell. Tonight we look at chapter 13, which is Samson's preparation and his calling. And so I'd call your attention to verse 1, chapter 13. It says, And again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So again, the longest time that Israel is in oppression to their enemies 40 years, and no instance or mention that they called out to the Lord. But notice that the enemy that God calls them or, or sells them into the hand of, in this instance, is the Philistines. Now, they have become, for the church, kind of a synonym for the enemies of God. We talk about the uncircumcised Philistines. And oftentimes, because Goliath was a Philistine, and we read about the Philistines, we think of the Philistines as being kind of the epicenter of God's enemy list. But really, it wasn't like that. In fact, the Philistines were not what you think. They were not Ishmaelites. They were not Arabs. They were not descendants of Abraham at all. But the the, the name Philistine actually means invader, And who they were was a a people that lived on the north part of the Mediterranean Sea near the Aegean Sea. And because of their uh, rowdiness, they were ousted from their land and they sought to invade Egypt. And so they traveled around the Mediterranean Sea and made their way and sought to invade Egypt around 1200 B.C. But Ramses III was, you know, onto their plan, and he overpowered them and didn't allow them to come in. So what they did is they settled just north of Egypt in the area that's known today as the Gaza Strip, in what became known as the five cities of the Philistines, which are Ekron, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gaza, and Gath, all names that you'll be familiar with as you read through your Bible and see those cities and those names. Now, they were European. And they were technologically advanced for their day. You'll see often that the Israelites have a hard time with them because the Philistines have weapons of iron, chariots of iron. We read about Goliath's armor and Goliath's sword, that there's nothing like it in all of Israel. And they had that upper hand as far as weaponry and technology uh, with them. Now, Samson began to conquer them. But they become Israel's enemy all the way up until the ministry of David uh, some 50 years later. 2 Samuel chapter 5 is when they are ultimately defeated. And many people don't know this part, is that the Philistines went extinct after that. There are no Philistines alive today. Now, Palestine was the name that was given to the land of Israel, and it was intended to be an insult to them, because Palestine means Philistine country. But there actually are no more Philistines. Now, the reason I tell you all of that is because the Philistines are going to become kind of a central character from now until the ministry of David. And so it helps us to know just a little bit uh, about them. But now we get into uh, Samson's parents in verse 2. It says, Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah. That's Samson's father. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, a very classic passage, the Apostle Paul says that we, he's talking about Christians, we are his, that is God's, workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. We, God's people, are God's workmanship. That is that He, as the artist, the potter, is working in, shaping, and developing our lives for the specific purpose that He has before ordained that we should fulfill on His behalf. He's shaping us. He's making us into something. He's working in our lives that he might also work through our lives. Now, just as any workman or artist or potter 
uses various tools and methods to shape what it is that he's trying to make, so also God is the same way. Now, unfortunately for you and I, many of the things, instruments that God uses to shape us are unpleasant for us. You know, things like um, affliction, pain, poverty, sickness, loss. You know, all of those things that we dread are actually tools that God uses to make us what he wants us to be. Now, he has things that we like, too, but we oftentimes don't pay attention to those because we like them, you know. But it's the things that we don't like that he uses that that, that often stand out to us the most. Now, one of them, one of God's tools that he uses effectively, but also selectively, is this issue of barrenness that we read taking place here in the wife of Manoah, the woman whose name is never given. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 15 and 16, it's actually the second half of verse 15 into 16, it says this, the the, the wise man writes this. He says, there are three things that are never satisfied. Four, never say enough. And then he tells us what they are, verse 16. The grave, the barren womb, the earth that is not satisfied with water, and the fire never says enough. And the idea is that these are things that no matter how much you feed them, they're never full. They're never satisfied. They never say, okay, I've had enough. Now, obviously, one of those things is not like the other three. You ever play that Sesame Street game with your kids? One of these things is not like the other. Now, when I list those four things, you know, and you look at them again, the grave the dry earth, the fire, and the barren womb, which one is not like the others, you know? And the idea is this proverb is not written about the dry earth or the fire or the grave. It's written to explain to us the barren womb. And here's the point of that, is that when a woman, and all women have a desire to bear, when a woman cannot bear, what happens inside, no matter what you do, you will never satisfy that longing that she has to bear a child. It's one of the most painful things that a woman can go through to experience that effect of barrenness. And it's very difficult to comfort or solace a woman who's experiencing that particular trial. The fact of the matter is that a Christian woman whose womb God has closed for his purpose, he's doing it because he has a reason. He's using that to shape his events and his will for his Time. I'm going to give you six uh, Bible characters right now. I'm going to name six Bible characters, and you'll know them all. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Old Testament Joseph, Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. I want you to tell me what all six of those characters have in common. The answer is barren mothers. Every one of them had barren mothers, and God used the barrenness that they experienced and the pain that went through it, to shape and prepare them to be the parents that they needed to be for the children that they would have that would change the world. And oftentimes when God has a plan, and he wants to use someone, he will use this tool of barrenness in such a way as to prepare a woman and draw her close to himself, that she might Tune in and pay attention and be prepared for what God wants to do uh, through her and through her children. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1 says this. It says that there is a time for every purpose under heaven. And that's frustrating. Because a purpose in a woman to have a child that hasn't yet come to God's time in the matter can be a painful instance. But yet, when time and purpose come together, and they will if God wills, it's going to be amazing. What we see in this woman, this wife of Manoah, nameless woman, we see that she's spiritual, we see that she's available, we see that she's willing, and we're going to see that she's a very, very wise person. And God used the barrenness that she experienced for maybe so long. I mean, the angel emphasizes this, he says it three times. And it was an issue, it was the issue but he used it to prepare her for what was yet to be. So hang in there. If that's a struggle of yours or someone that you know, God is in it. So we move on, verse 4, and we see now the instructions that this angel gives concerning Samson. We see that he's to be a Nazarite, verse 4. It says, Now therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, 
and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Now, what was this? this is, we've never seen this uh, happen in someone's life yet in the Bible. So what is this Nazarite vow? The instructions are given in Numbers chapter 6, the first few verses there in the chapter. And basically, what the Nazarite vow consisted of were three elements. Number one is that if you were under the vow of a Nazarite, you were not to touch anything from the vintage. No grapes, no raisins, no wine, nothing at all that had any association with grapes. That was number one. Number two is that you were never to come near a corpse or anything that was dead. And number three, you were never to cut your hair. Now, in most instances, a vow of a Nazarite would only last for a period of time. Usually, it would be about 30 days. But there are three characters in the Bible that are separated from the womb that are to be Nazarites for life. Samson is the first that we see here. Samuel will be the second. And only John the Baptist, that uh, for telling prophet of Christ in the New Testament will be the third. Those are the only three that it was be, uh, to be for life. Now, the application of that vow, and every Old Testament custom has a New Testament counterpart or application or lesson that we can learn and understand what it's to mean, is this. The Nazarite was to be separated and consecrated completely to God. The wine in the Bible always speaks of human joy. And so to abstain from wine under the vow of a Nazarite would be that my joy or my human emotion is completely satisfied in God. I find no earthly means or I depend upon no earthly means to fulfill my joy, but my joy is found totally in Him. The fact that they were never to touch a corpse speaks of their associations. That the child of God who's dedicated to God is not to associate with the dead or dead things that defile is the implication. And then the hair, your guess is as good as mine. Because there's absolutely nothing about the practical aspect of having long hair or unshorn hair that would make someone stronger than someone else. And there's really no clear picture given to us in Scripture that, that clearly defines exactly what it speaks of. But I'll tell you what my thoughts are when I think about it. Number one is that, you know, most people get haircuts to reflect beauty or to kind of blend with culture. And, and, and so someone who could never cut their hair it would be a sign that they're not interested in that. That their affinity, their affiliation, their appearance is never to be something where I'm trying to identify with anything in this world. And so it's, again, just a, a symbol of consecration. That is being distinct and set apart for God completely for uh, Him. And there's something to that for us is that as Christians, we're never to be Christians only in our outward appearance. Our identity with Christ is not in what we do and what we don't do, what we say and what we don't say. It's in who we are on the inside, and what's on the outside is only a reflection of that work that the Spirit of God does on the inside. And so the Nazarites spoke of consecration, and that's what Samson was to be. He was to be consecrated completely uh, to God. Now, verse 5b, the second half of the, the verse there, it says that he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now that's an interesting verse, because not only does the angel, who we will find out is none other than the Lord himself, not only does the angel know already what Samson will do, he also knows that he's not going to finish the job. And that's an interesting thing if you want to think through it, as you consider in your own mind the sovereignty of God and how that blends with the choices and the responsibilities of us and how, you know, God already knows the choices that we're going to make even though he's carved out work for us. It's an interesting thing. We won't get into it now. Um, but, but we see that, he's, that she's told what it is that he's going to do. Now, in verse 6, the attention turns completely to the parents all the way up now until verse 23. And what we catch here is a glimpse of godly parenting. These are godly people that raise up Samson. And it gives us great insight into what it means to be parents, godly parents, Christian parents, in raising up someone that God might have a call or a plan upon their life. Notice in verse 6. It says, So the woman came and she told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. 
But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. Now, you husbands, this is for you. That is the most frustrating phrase in the whole Bible. I don't know about you, but my wife does this to me all the time. This incredible thing happened today. You're not going to believe it. What did he say? I, I don't really know. Um, what was his name? I didn't catch that. What did he look like? And, and she has none of the facts. Do, does, am I the only one? Okay, maybe. <laughs> he came, it was awesome, but I didn't ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But notice verse 7, it says, and he, But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb until the day of his death. So she gets the important part right. She says, this I do know is that we're going to have a son, and that these are the instructions concerning his upbringing from the womb until his death. And so Manoah, he doesn't get angry, he doesn't flip out and say, are you crazy? Not, you know, no, he does a good thing. Look at verse 8. It says, then Manoah prayed to the Lord. And he said, oh, my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah arose and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Circle that because that could be significant. And Manoah said, let now your words come to pass. So as soon as Manoah sees this being, this angel, this apparition, who is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, he knows that he's in the presence of power, and he knows that what he said is going to come to pass. But notice for you, for those of you, those of us that want to understand the keys to godly parenting, number one, and it's seen here in these verses, is this, is that take your cues from God's word. Notice what he says. He says, let your words come to pass. Notice how close Manoah and his wife listen to the instruction. He tells them exactly how they're to raise this child. He's to be a Nazarite. He's not to come near the vintage. He's not to be near death. He's not to uh, cut his hair. But he's to be separated, devoted to God from the birth until the death. Complete. And they listen in so that they can raise him according to the word that God gave them. That's a real key for parenting, is that we lay the foundation of the authority of the scriptures in the lives of our children at a young age. The story is told of a man who's sitting by a river bank in a very uh, beautiful place, but the river just runs wild right there. And as he's sitting there just enjoying the day, he sees that there's somebody drowning, uh, struggling as they come down the, the surf. And so he, being an excellent swimmer, he quickly jumps into the water and, and brings the person to shore, sparing and saving their life. But no sooner does he get them onto the shore, but he looks out and he sees another person coming down the the river. And so he quickly jumps back in and he saves the second one. And then he gets him out and sees that there's another one coming down. And this happens seven or eight times before the man pulls the last one to shore and he's absolutely spent and exhausted. He's got nothing left in him after saving eight lives. And then he sees another one come down the line. And he begins to think within himself and ask the question, What in the world is going on upstream? And sometimes it can be like that for us parents. Is that we see our kids and they're going along and all of a sudden we see an issue in their life. They're dying, they're drowning, there's something happening, we notice it's wrong. And so we we go in and we save them. But no sooner do we save them that we see that there's another problem or another child of ours has a problem. And we go, oh, and we go in and we save that child. And then we see no sooner do we get them out, but then there's another problem. And all of a sudden we find ourselves spent and we begin to ask the question is, why in the world is this happening? What's happening upstream? Well, here's what's happening upstream. Is that the foundation of the Word of God was never laid out in their life. And thus there's something happening that's causing them to drown. One of the things, and and listen, nothing is foolproof. We're going to see that because Samson's going to go berserk. But one of the things that helps 
as parents, and I will even go so far as to say that it, it, is, it works, is that if you can, at a young age, get a hold of your children and lay in their lives the foundation of the authority of God's Word, that they might believe that God's Word is true, that it's living, that it's active, that it works. Because once you do that as a parent, you can always appeal to the Word of God in the parenting decisions that you make. And your children will go along if they believe you that the Word of God is the truth. I find that to be so useful in my own house. Now, please, you know, we're praying in Jesus' name that our children, you know, continue in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And I realize that they're young, you know, and and that we have yet to hit those teenage years and see what's going to happen when they begin to make their own choices and realize, you know, whatever. But I can say this, is that in many, many instances... When we've had to make decisions or say no or, you know, st- stand against something that they want and we can hold them accountable to the word of God, it's such a peaceable outcome. When they're watching something, a movie that maybe we rented and we have to turn it off because there's something in it that isn't right. And, and, they, and they look at us as we shut it off and they look at me and I can just say, hey, listen, I know, but there's death in the pot. And they know what I'm talking about because we've been through those verses there where, you know, Elisha said, come on, let's make a stew. And they throw all kinds of stuff in the stew and someone throws something poisonous in there. And one piece of poison ruined the stew for everything. But they, but they, they understand the danger that exists there. Not because dad says so, but because it's the word of God. We're going to stand on the word of God in this one. And they can say, yeah, we can see that. We understand it. See, because you're, it's the word of God. And, and the reason that works for our kids is because we ourselves also live that way. I mean, that was our foundation as early Christians. It's like, what does the Bible say? What does God say? Because if we build our lives according to God's word, then we know that he's going to see us through as we make decisions and plans and whatnot. And so these guys pay close attention to the word that God gives them so that When Samson then says, well, why can't I eat the raisins with everyone else in the daycare? Or why can't I go out and get bombed on the weekends with my friends? Or why can't I go hunting with the guys? Then they can point to the word of God and they can say, because this is what God has done in our lives. And this is what God's going to do in your life. This is what he says in your word, in his word. And they can hold him to the word of God. And so godly parents uphold. They take their cues from the word of God. The second thing we see it in uh, the second half of verse 12 there and into verse 13. Notice this is that uh, Manoah then says uh, there, he says, What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. The second thing we see is that they, they parent through prayer. They parent through prayer. They ask God, God, what is it that you want to do with this young life? And what will be his manner of work? Our role as parents, mom and dad, is not to mold our children into what we think they should be. But rather, it's to unfold what God is making them to be. Our kids are not ours, they're His. And He's given them to us on loan so that we can see His plan worked out in their lives. And the only way that's possible is if we do it prayerfully. That we ask God constantly, God, what are you doing in their life? What are you seeking to invest? What gifts have you given to them? What have you made them for? And how do you want me then to raise them or decide for them or do whatever for them so that they might see what you've ultimately made them to be? So they parent through prayer. Then number three is in verse 14. It says, she may not eat anything that comes from the vine nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I command her, let her observe. Now notice who he's talking to. He's talking to Manoah to reinforce what he said to Manoah's wife concerning how she behaves in her conception and then how they raise Samson together in tandem. But what's the point? The point is this. Number three for godly parenting is this, is that you've got to participate. It isn't that we just pontificate to our kids what it is that they're to do and not to do, but that we're to participate in raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That we see to it that we ourselves 
are, 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 are living right and doing right so that what we're instilling in them, you know, is reinforced by our own behavior. You, how many, uh, well, I think probably all of us that live around here have one of those whole house filters, you know, down where the, wa- the well comes into your house. If you have a well, you have one of those big filters uh, that, that takes the sediment out of the well water. You know, ours is so bad that we have like many of them, you know, just all there in a line and, and they have to be changed. And, and we know that they have to be changed when the water pressure drops. You know, you're trying to take a shower and it's like dripping out of the, the nozzle, you know, and, and you can't turn two sinks on at the same time. You know, that's when it's time to clean out the filter. But really, parents, you and I, we are the whole house filter spiritually. And, and that is that, that it, it's up to us to protect what comes into our homes for our kids so that they are not then defiled by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and he gets his hands on them rather than God's plan being worked through their lives. And so if we don't participate in raising them in that way, and we're just counting on maybe the Sunday school to do it or someone else or whatever, then it's, it's not going to happen. It's not going to work. You know? And so they're called to participate. And, uh, and then, and finally, uh, verse 15, um, notice what it says. It says, And then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please, let us detain you, and we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. So Manoah thinks that this is just a prophet. And he's saying, hey, we appreciate the favor that you've done for us. Now, when your word comes to pass, we want to bring you a gift. We want to honor you. So tell me, what is your name? And so the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Now, he doesn't answer the question. The word wonderful here is not a name. He's not saying that my name is wonderful. He's saying that what my name is, is a wonderful thing. And he doesn't tell him what it is. And so Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering, and he offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he, that is the angel who is the Lord, did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. So him who was wonderful did something wonderful. And it says that it happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. And when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. And when the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Number four, as far as terms of being a godly parent, and this is huge, probably the most important of all, grow. That you grow in your intimacy, in your relationship, and in your knowledge of God. Notice that the angel who was the Lord denied Manoah's request to know his name. Manoah was asking a question that would satisfy his intellect. He wanted to know a fact about who it was that was speaking with him, but he was denied access to that knowledge. But, just a moment later, the access that was denied to his mind was granted to his heart. Because what he was not allowed to know intellectually, he was able to experience physically. He watched as the angel consumed the sacrifice and then was ascended into heaven. And it happened in such a way that Manoah was affected by what he experienced forever. And that's the difference, by the way, between what we learn in our heads and what we experience in our hearts and in our lives. Oftentimes we come to God with curiosity. We want to know things about him. A lot of times we approach the word of God intellectually. God, teach me things about you. And he does, and his word is filled with things that we can know about God. But oftentimes, the things that we learn about God mentally or theologically have no bearing or effect upon our lives in the way that we walk or are changed or carry ourselves after the fact. However, the things that God does in our lives through our circumstances and things that happen to us as we're living that reveal to us who he is, those things change us forever. But when he becomes more real because we see him work through a circumstance or a situation. 
Sometimes we pray and we say, God, show me what you're doing. Tell me what I'm supposed to do next. And we say, why are you so silent? You're telling me nothing. But then we walk a little bit further and we watch the plan unfold. And we come to a place where what we intellectually would have wasted away, it would have been nothing. We see what he's done and how he's worked it to our good. And we say, yes, Lord, thank you for who you are. I think of the disciples that were on the boat that was being tossed by the waves. Jesus was in the back of the boat sleeping, and they're saying, Lord, do you have something for this? I mean, we're dying over here. And then finally, Jesus wakes up, and he speaks to the wind and the waves, and they are immediately calmed. And then he looks at them with a smile, and he says, Why did you doubt, Oh, you of little faith? And it says that these men that had seen this man now turn water into wine, cleanse leprosy, raise the dead, multiply loaves and fishes, but it says that at that moment they fell to their knees and they marveled and they worshipped him. They said, who is this that has power even over the wind and the waves? And there was something about God that they were in the very presence of him. But they weren't aware of something so real as who he was. And So often that's the way that God works in our lives. Is We want to know things about him. We want our minds to be filled. But he wants our hearts to be filled. And so sometimes he's silent and he doesn't answer our questions or answer our prayers. But as we walk with him and experience what he does in our lives, we realize who he is in the depths of our soul. And that lasts with us forever. And that's what happens to Manoah here to the point where it says in verse 22, it said, And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen God. He knows now exactly who he was in the presence. It's an interesting study to do, to look through the scriptures and see what happened when at various times people came face to face with the Lord himself. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. And he fell to the ground and he said, woe is me, I'm undone, a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the Lord. Daniel, who, no recorded sin in the Bible connected with Daniel's life, but he saw the Lord in Daniel chapter 10, and he said that when I saw him, my beauty was turned in me into corruption. I realized what I was, and I fell as dead before him. The Apostle John on the island of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1, he sees Jesus there glorified before him, and he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his hand upon me. Here Manoah realizes who he had been in the presence of and he falls to the ground and he thinks, I'm not even worthy to live having been in the presence of God. But his wife talks sense into him in verse 23. It says, But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us these things, nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. I love, don't you love the wisdom and the sense a wife can bring sometimes? (laughs) here's the preacher's tightrope you know sometimes you know amazing so the woman bore a son and she called his name samson and the child grew and the lord blessed him and the spirit of the lord began to move upon him at mahana dan between zora and esh So we see the birth now of Samson. His name means uh, sunlight or like the sun. So a bright future for Israel in the mind of his parents and a bright future for their home. This barren couple that now has the son that they so greatly desired. We see here it tells us in this final verse it says that the spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. Now that's a very gracious description, but if you look up that word in the Hebrew language where it says that the Spirit began to move upon him, the word means uh, that, the, that he would begin to beat regularly and persistently. That's what the word move means in the Hebrew language. That the Spirit of God began to beat him regularly and persistently. Now you said, wait a minute, you just told us that the Lord blessed him, and now you're telling us that the Lord beat him. Which is it? It's both. Because sometimes the blessing comes in the beating. So what do you mean? I have here, I got it from my children. This is a lump of clay. Clay is harvested from the earth. It's made from the earth, but it is used by men to fashion into vessels things that are useful, things that are beautiful, things that are good. But when a potter or an artist or a child pulls a lump of clay out of the earth, that clay is not yet suitable to be used to be made into a vessel or something that could be 
uh, a blessing to someone else. And so there's a process. And the very first thing that must be done to clay when it is harvested in order to make it useful is that it must be beaten. And the clay never appreciates what the potter is doing. But if the vessel that the potter is creating is going to be of any use at all, then that clay must be beaten. And here's why. Because inside the clay, when it is just ored right out of the ground, are many air pockets and impurities and pieces of rock and earth that will defile the integrity or keep the strength of it from being what it's supposed to be. And all of those things must be removed if the vessel's going to be what it's supposed to be. Those air pockets, the empty spaces have to be gone out so that there can be strength as God intends. The little pieces of rock that will interrupt the flow of the potter's press as he works it and makes it into something, those little pieces will stop and not allow him to do what he wants to do. And so they must be removed. And the only way that it can be done is if it's beaten. If it's rolled over regularly, if it's warmed, if it's made pliable, if it's worked with and folded. The Bible says that God is a potter and that we are the clay. That he is our father and we're his sons and his daughters. And just like a potter takes the clay and he makes it into something that he can shape and mold and make useful, so he does in our lives. And we see it here in Samson's life. You say, well, what's the purpose? Why, why does God do that? Why, why is that so necessary or, or, or important? Here's why. Because we're sinners. Did you know that? Did you know that when he finds us, when he makes us, we're after the nature of Adam and there are things in us that have to go? And here's the thing you've got to know. Is that if those things are not removed, then they will come back in the end and wipe us out. And that's exactly what we see is going to happen to Samson here. He's a perfect example of it. Listen, we must, as the children of God, we must be dead to the world. It has to be. Every affection and affinity towards worldly things must be taken out of our lives in order for us to bear lasting fruit before the Lord. And we've got to come to a point where we realize that nothing on this earth will ever satisfy us. Because if we don't come to that point then there's going to come a point in our lives later on where we have resources or abilities to do things and we will go back and do things that we wanted to do when we were youth that we couldn't do that are worldly in nature that will destroy and ruin our lives. It will happen. The flesh must be consecrated and killed, completely devoted unto the Lord. Every lust, every desire, whether it be for money or fame or power or anything else that this world has to offer, it must be removed by God as he takes out those air pockets and removes those impurities. Why? Because here's what's going to happen. Is that if there's one thing that's left in your life or my life of the old man or the old nature, and and it's hidden there. God, it's deep in the clay. No one's ever going to know that I have that lust or that money love or that desire for fame or affluence. No one needs to know it's there, God. It's way down in the clay. You can make anything you want. Just leave that there. It's not going to ever come out. Here's here's what I can tell you. Is that it might be 20 years, it might be 30 years. And God might bless your life and do for you what he's been wanting to do your whole life. But I can tell you what's going to take you down is that one thing that you didn't let him root out of the clay long, long ago. It will take you down. We see it all the time. He was the pastor of a church for 30 years. There were thousands of people going there. People were being baptized weekly. He was in a massage parlor doing what? How could it be? I'll tell you how it could be. Because there was a season where God was beating the clay, and the clay said no. I said, I don't want, to, I don't want, I don't want that beating anymore. God, I'm done with the beating. Move me in. I don't want to wait. It's got to be out. It's got to get out. Because if you don't let God take it out, it will come back later, and it will destroy you. Without fail. Our gifts, the wisdom that God desires to give us, all of the preparation that He is working as He makes us into that workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, all of those things must be prepared and ready. And God has to take His time and do it right. Here's why because human nature, yours and mine, and we are all the same, is that we will always skim off the top of what God gives us. 
If God gives us wisdom, we will use that wisdom for God, but we will also use it for ourselves. If God gives us influence, we'll use our influence for God, but we will also use that influence for ourselves. If he gives us charisma or intelligence, or if God gives us strength physically like he did for Samson, if he gives us understanding and the ability to discern and see through things, if he gives us insight into people so that we can understand how people work and and, and whatnot, he could give us wisdom beyond comprehension, he could give us material wealth, money beyond what we could ever imagine. But if our hearts are completely consecrated to God, then whatever it is that he gives us, we will ultimately use to glorify ourselves over God, and it will take us down. And here's what I'm convinced of as we close this Bible study tonight. I'm convinced of this with all my heart, and if you can hear me, blessed are you, is that there is nothing, nothing, that God will withhold from the person whose heart is completely devoted to him. Nothing. And if God withholds something from one of his children, it is because our hearts are not able to bear what it is that he would give us and we would use it to ruin ourselves. I'm thoroughly convinced of that. That if God could give me influence and I wouldn't use that influence to glorify myself above him, he would give it to me. If God could give me wisdom and I wouldn't use that wisdom to magnify my position or to get my own situation set up the way I want it or make sure I'm protected and insulated, he would give it to me. I would use it for him. God, I'll use it for you, but I'm going to use it for me too. If God would give me money to use for his kingdom and his glory that I wouldn't use to, you know, it's... It's a 60-inch. I've always wanted a 60-inch, you know. It's, it's really, it's not a big deal. We can afford this. It's, it's really not a big deal. I know it's a Lexus, but, you know, it, it's reliable and safe. And if I wouldn't use it to lift myself up, see, he knows us, and he will not give us anything that's going to destroy us. And you know what the example is? It's Samson. Because God gave him strength. God gave Samson strength that God never gave to another human being. And look what Samson did with it. His heart wasn't consecrated. You know why? Because Samson said no when the Spirit began to move upon him. The first verses of chapter 14, the first words, it says, Samson went down. And that will be the story of the rest of Samson's life. And why? Because during the season of Samson's life, when God had a plan to make him into the man that he needed to be so that God could get the most glory and use Samson to the most of his potential, Samson said no. So what is God's plan for you? What does God want to do in your life? I don't know. I do know that he only made one of you and that no one else can do what God made you to do. But I know that there's a season. I know that there's a process. I know that there's a time where God separates his sons and daughters completely to himself. And if we say no, hey, the scary thing is that God might use us. He might let those things hide in the deep recesses of our soul somewhere. But can I tell you, someday it's going to come out. And that's when it will be a disaster. What's God doing in your life right now? What's the season of waiting or suffering or beating that you might be feeling? Listen, James chapter 1 verse 4. It says, but let patience have its perfect work, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And one more thought, and then we're done. The worship team can come. Don't take for granted who might be sleeping down the hall from you tonight. Those little lives that might be driving you crazy, mom and dad. The annoyances, the grievances, the difficulties. Don't ever take for granted what God might be doing in them. Lay the foundation of the word of God deep within their souls. Pray for those little lives. Look into their faces and beg God to show you what it is that he's going to do with them. Let them be completely consecrated for him and for his glory, for his purposes. Participate in their upbringing. Teach them the word. Do things in the Lord together with them. Grow them up and you grow yourself. And see what God might do. Because just like God is changing times in Israel, preparing to do the next thing, to bring David, 
to bring Solomon, to bring the glory years. I can tell you this about our world right now, is that we're either on the cusp of the rapture of the church or we're on the cusp of needing a whole generation of Joshua's and Daniel's and John the Baptist's and Paul's and Noah's. And it's our job to instill that in them. So may God give us wisdom and may he use us for his glory. Father, we thank you tonight for this word. Give us the wisdom and the grace to heed the counsel that you give. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and insight into what you're doing through our trials, through our sufferings, that we might bear the most fruit for you. And if there be anything in our lives tonight, O Lord, that you would harvest out, we pray that you would give you the permission right now. That, Lord, any sin, any vice, anything, O Lord, take it out and replace it, Lord, with that substance that can be used for your glory that we might reflect at your image and be used for you. Please, Lord, take this word. Grip us with it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.